I'm glad you're joining us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. I'm host Carrie Freeman coming to you from Atlanta in September of 2021. Today, we're going to be talking about the concepts of interspecies justice and animal rights from a legal and ecofeminist perspective, where we put animal rights in context of intersectional social justice activism with my guest, Dr. Merrick Muller, professor and author of the book, Impersonating Animals, Rhetoric, Ecofeminism, and Animal Rights Law. In her reviewing their book, this is what I wrote, Impersonating Animals is an exciting and innovative book that provides legal guidance for animal advocates to achieve total liberation of species using a rhetorical approach that draws upon the strengths of theories on animal personhood, abolitionism, deep ecology, and ecofeminism to develop a more intersectional and post-colonial approach to the notion of interspecies justice. Readers will gain a useful overview of all of these theories and a thoughtful yet pragmatic prescription for Mueller's inclusive and nuanced notion of a critical vegan rhetoric. Information on the book is found at the Michigan State University Press website at msupress.org. The author is our guest, Dr. S. Merrick Muller, an assistant professor of rhetorical studies at Florida Atlantic University. They are a rhetorician interested in human rights, non-human animal rights, and the humanity-animality dialectic. Specifically, she researches the rhetoric of speciesism, and that's a false presumption of human exceptionalism. When speciesism is used by, one, rhetors looking to ex- uh, exploit non-human animals by animalizing them, rhetors or communicators looking to exploit humans by dehumanizing them, and communicators fighting for social and environmental justice by articulating the intersections of human and non-human animal exploitation. Dr. Muller has also taught at Ball State University in Indiana and the Institute for Engineering Mongolia. They received their PhD in communication with certificate in women and gender studies from the University of Utah. Welcome, Dr. Muller. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Freeman. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad to be talking to you because I enjoyed your book so much and I'm so impressed by it. Um, (laughs) I wanted to start off by saying, of course, a lot of people have written about animal rights from a legal and philosophy perspective. Over the last 50 years, we've got like Peter Singer and Tom Reagan, Mary Midgley, Gary Steiner, Lee Hall, Stephen Wise, Gary Francione, uh, Manisha Deka, just to name some notable authors. And, and since you're a communication scholar and a feminist, what opportunity did you see to add a useful new perspective to this discussion on animal rights within the legal discourse in terms of like maybe what was missing or, or what was needed? So I don't want to like imply that the other authors <laughs> right. are I'm sorry. not I didn't... good at their job. Yeah, exactly. Good. I'm sorry if I set it up oh, that no, way. <laughs> I get it. It's always so difficult when you have to explain like why why the book fills the gap. Yes. I say, um, the big difference between my work and the work of uh, the other authors you mentioned is the bulk of them are coming from one of two arenas. Um, formal legal positivism, which is to say these are trained lawyers. They're straight out of JD programs and they look at the law from legal text strategies, what's going to work according to precedent. And a lot of the other scholars are working from a philosophical perspective, often uh, very straight utilitarianism or classical rights theory. Um, 
And others like Manisha Deca are taking a much more nuanced approach and looking at things through the lens of things like post-colonial studies. And I don't, um, I don't discount those. Rather, what I think I add is the perspective of somebody who studies persuasion and argument. Um, right. There's only so much you can do with arguments based in legal doctrines and based in ethics if you're not communicating it in a way that allows maximum people to respond with maximum effectiveness. And so what I wanted to do was assess the intricacies of major and minor arguments uh, regarding animal rights and their intersections with human rights, particularly in um, discussions that have legal implications. Right. That's so, as a fellow communications scholar, I, I agree. <laughs> That's so important. And just since we're talking about language now, I thought it would be good for our listeners. Uh, they might benefit from hearing how you succinctly define some terms that are critical to your perspective, but maybe might be unfamiliar, like the term ecofeminism. Oh, absolutely. So feminism, as we know, is both a, a philosophy and a an embodied movement that has to do with the idea that patriarchy needs to be abolished, where patriarchy in this sense can be defined as the idea that the masculine is superior to the feminine. And I would say more recent literature would also say that the masculine feminine binary is incoherent. Echofeminism doesn't discount any of that. Rather, it's a way to look at feminist uh, philosophy, feminist activism in a way that does not discount species, nature, Mm -hmm. the environment, wilderness, all of these concepts and material realities, uh, these are all embedded in the impression of human others and also human others' conceptions of selves. This can also lead to further oppression of environments, places, spaces, which has disastrous effects, not only for humans, but for other species. Yes, well put. And also you take a post-colonial perspective. Can you briefly explain what what that entails? Yes. And of course, just like ecofeminism, it's very hard to do that in a few sentences. <laughs> yeah. uh, but, but to put it very simply, um, the official era of you know, European expansionism is technically over in so much as there's a lot less active taking boats, invading countries and profiting off of their resources in the name of Great Britain. That's not to say there's none of that. Um, But the post-colonial perspective basically says just because you don't see the boat with the British flag colonizing and cutting up places like Africa does not mean that the lingering effects Mm. of those economic um, oppressive forces uh, is gone. And in fact, when we take a post-colonial perspective, uh, we can see how issues of coloniality and how that coloniality impacts perceptions of things like economic relations, gender relations, racial relations, class relations, uh, is pertinent to issues not only about humans, but also about relationships with environments. Right. It's actually so pervasive, (laughs) you know, the the post-colonialism and its effects. Once you start um, foregrounding it or, or recognizing it, I'm in the process of trying to decolonize my mind <laughs> and that that's going to take like, it's probably going to be a lifelong process there. Um, I also wanted to ask about interspecies justice, because this is a term I've recently started using and I like the term. And I think I used to just say like animal rights and human rights or intersectional act- activism or something, but I really like the term interspecies justice, but what, what does it mean to you? 
So I take interspecies justice out of a concept that I learned from a really amazing author named David Abram, who wrote a book called Spell of the Sensuous. Oh, I love that book. Yeah. And so David Abram basically proposes that instead of saying words like the human world and nature or nature and culture, we move towards a term that decenters the human without proposing that the human be tossed out into the garbage in discussions about the environment. And what Abram proposed was the term more than human world. And so for me, hearing more than human world, I wanted to see how I could come up with a term that sort of embodied that ethic, but had to do with justice, both moral and legal, legal, both uh, de facto and de jour. And so for me, interspecies justice met that qualification where we're looking at justice between and across species lines. I, re- I like that. Well, one of the main movements now in animal rights law is not to just prove industry is cruel to animals and needs to improve animal welfare, but rather to raise the status of non-human animal individuals from legal things or property under the law to legal persons with rights under the law, such as the approach taken by the innovative organization, the Non-Human Rights Project. Can you tell us about this personhood approach and ways that you think it could be improved, even if that's rhetorically improved? Sure. And uh, to be clear, my book does offer some pretty strident critiques of of um, organizations such as the Non-Human Rights Project, not because I think what they're doing is wrong, but just because I think it's important to always question even things that are going very well to see if things could be potentially done better. Um, And what the Non-Human Rights Project run by Stephen Weiss and other similar organizations such as the Great Apes Project are doing is basically saying when animals are resigned to the status of thinghood under the law, any attempt to get them what could be considered any reasonable form of justice is pretty much impossible because, and this is something that uh, vegan abolitionist Gary Francione has explained time and time again, if you're ever in a situation where a human is put against a dog and a dog has bit that human and Mm -hmm. the question is, does the dog need to be put down? What you're essentially in is in an argument between somebody who's considered a legal person with Uh, standing with value uh, under the law versus a dog, which really has the legal value of a television set, a car, a stick. Mm. And in most cases, and arguably all cases, the human is going to come out on top. And really the only way we have around that right now is if somebody files a suit on behalf of the animal as like a friend of the court, or if a person sues because someone killed their dog and they want to get the property value of that dog back. So when we ascribe personhood to animals, the animals are actually being understood as legal beings in and of themselves who are deserving of legal rights and potentially have legal standing. Now, these are terms that are very lawyerly, but essentially standing means can you sue and rights mean, well, if you can sue, what are you suing about? That's a very, very, very elementary explanation, but standing and rights are fundamental to having any chance of respect under the law. And how is this conception of personhood bound up in systemic oppression? So this is sort of where you have to look at how personhood is simultaneously a legal concept and a moral concept, because law and morality are obviously embedded in one another. Law is a question of what's right and wrong. 
and you can't understand right and wrong without moral conceptions of right and wrong. And so when we look at the idea of the person, what we're essentially looking at is this idea of a moral community, a community of beings who matter and for whom we have reciprocal rights, duties, obligations. A person, generally speaking, is a subject in this moral community to whom I owe a certain level of respect and decency. And in theory, potentially, if we take a reciprocal approach, that would mean that that being also owes me some sort of decency. Mm -hmm. This is where questions start to get a little convoluted as to who owes who what, but centrally, a person is someone with value morally. And if that moral value is taken seriously, then when we have institutions like the law, which are essentially putting moral codes into written text that can be enforced by state actors, that's when we start to understand how systemic oppressions play into this. Because if we look back through basically the darkest chapters of world history, genocides, slavery, really any situation where we see just horrific, horrific treatment of people by other people. You see that the people who were being treated poorly were, be were being treated poorly because they weren't considered to be people. Or if they mm -hmm. were considered people, at best, they were semi-people. Where people, once again, is understood as someone who matters and who is therefore owed a modicum of respect and whose respect could potentially be codified under the law. And so is it, and because there's really like a racist and sexist notion of who the quote unquote ideal person is or the person who matters the most, does that make it troubling for, for animal rights advocates to then use the notion of a person to try to apply it to non-human animals or the dog we were talking about? It certainly does if you are a very, very poor rhetorician. Um, if you communicate through analogy, that analogy needs to make sense and be sensitive to its political context. If you're going to literally say an animal is a slave, you need to think long and hard about what you're doing because there are very different material realities that are involved in being um, milked to death on a dairy farm and being voted across the Atlantic to pick cotton I mean, it's not the same thing, but the ideology at its core, this idea of who matters, who is a person, who is valued, and how does that value manifest in treatment of others? That's the similarity. The similarity goes back to the valuation of the other. And when we start to look at things like identity and how identity is made manifest across categories such as race, gender, class, disability, Species is not only another one of those categories, but it's almost like an overarching category where who counts as a gender, as a disabled person, as a race is largely embedded in this question of who is quote unquote properly human, which um, feminist Sylvia Winter actually defined as the overrepresentation of man, where mm. essentially <laughs> the idea is there is in uh, colonial ontology, ontology basically meaning an understanding of the state of reality, this idea that there is in fact an idealized human subject, but largely that idealized human subject is, prop is propped up by whatever group tends to be most in power, right. which is why we see not only 
animals oppressed because they are not quote unquote human in the sense that they are not homo sapien, but we largely see institutionalized whiteness, heteronormativity, uh, ableism propped up because those in power mm. are not that way generally. Yeah. So the law always has or often has a bias towards those who write the law and who, who are in power. Um, and yeah, it, and obviously that's not how one would hope the law is. Right. It's right. It's not the the idealized state. A lot of that, I think, those biases and prejudices um, are kind of invisible, maybe, to those in power. Sometimes it's done on purpose, and sometimes it's done out of ignorance. I suppose. Yeah. Um, And that's what we would call a legal positivist approach, where the idea is that the law is a science, it's objective, it's unbiased, it's fully rational. That's how the law is supposed to function, which is why in law school, that's generally what is taught. It's much like how you would be taught generally in science. If you just give people the right information, they'll make the rational decision. So the idea is if the judge hears the case, if the lawyer presents the case rationally, then naturally the right decision will occur. But if we look into who wrote the laws, why they wrote the laws, what does legal precedent say about what laws are likely to get passed, how and when and overturned, that's when we start to need to take a more critical view of how things like standing and personhood have been weaponized to keep not only humans in power, but particular humans in power. Yes. Now, another chapter of your book talks about the notion of earth jurisprudence, earth jurisprudence, a a legal approach that environmentalists are starting to use to defend animals and nature and their habitats. Can you talk about that as well? Yeah, absolutely. Earth jurisprudence is a very, very interesting, albeit small field of law. Um, a lot of it is actually coming out of South Florida, uh, Barry University Center for Earth Jurisprudence. Mm. So I'm very happy that I get to be down here and right. watch that. Yeah. Um, Earth jurisprudence is very interesting because it's one of the only fields of law that explicitly calls out um, generalized law as being anthropocentric, meaning mm. the human is the idealized subject, the human is the, the most valuable being under law, and says that perhaps we should take what is called an ecocentric approach to law. Mm. Ecocentric basically says displace the human as the center and place ecology, specifically ecological systems, as the center of the moral universe and see what law would look like Mm. if ecocentrism was at the core of the moral fabric of society. Now, what does this look like in practice? That's really hard to say, because again, this is a burgeoning field of law that's largely just theoretical. However, there was a very famous essay put forth entitled, Should Trees Have Legal Standing? Mm. And by an earth jurisprudential approach, the answer is yes, they should. By virtue of being part of a functioning ecosystem, trees have just as much a right to legal standing as I do. If we take seriously the idea that every being matters equally, provided that it is fundamental to the health of a flourishing society, if in fact we agree that we are all part of one fundamental ecosystem. So it's a really interesting idea in theory because um, when we talk about environmental protection, oftentimes, the idea of suing on behalf of the environment 
Um, again, it comes back down to the idea that the environment does not generally, there are some very interesting exceptions, the environment does not generally have standing unless someone sues on the environment's behalf, upon which it's very difficult to prove damages. Mm. Uh, so mm. if we took an earth jurisprudential approach seriously, it would be a lot easier to perhaps sue on behalf of an extremely polluted river that is considered to be a lifeline to multiple communities. And that is perhaps even considered to have value in and of itself. Um, there is um, sort of a divide in their jurisprudence where um, a lot of indigenous ontologies, indigenous jurisprudence is being drawn upon, but a lot of the times it's done rather poorly. It's um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting field that has a lot of potential, but that it, it's so small, I think it needs a lot of further development. Um, but my biggest issue with it, and that's not to say I discount earth jurisprudence at all. In fact, yeah. of the um the paradigms that I address in my book, I think earth jurisprudence perhaps is the closest to the sort of legal system I could see really taking seriously the idea of interspecies justice. One of the issues of earth jurisprudence is that much like a lot of people who veer towards ecocentrism is we sort of move from an anthropocentric approach where humans are what matters to a misanthropic approach where humans are dirty, pristine nature is what should exist. And the idea of human versus animal, human versus nature, those are binaries that are pretty typical yeah. in human society at this point, but they're binaries that really need to be deconstructed because if we believe that nature is meant to be pristine, untouched, not only is that anachronistic, since a lot of the other places that are considered pristine, such as national parks, became that way through the displacement of indigenous peoples, but it also really discounts the impact of things like anthropogenic climate change, mm. where there's really no space on earth that is untouched by humanity. So right. if we take seriously the idea that the human touch is dirty, and if humans touch nature, this is a problem, um, it, it can close doors to explore issues where that binary is really complicated. So for instance, yeah. when we talk about issues like domesticity, livestock animals, I think one of the biggest issues with earth jurisprudence is the issue with a lot of deep green ecology standpoints in the first place, which is what do you do when the nature culture binary isn't clear cut? What do you do mm. when there are urban foxes? What right. do you do when a cow is technically part of human culture, but also technically part of this wild nature? Um, something that not only law has to deal with, but environmentalism has to deal with, animal rights has to deal with, is this perceived separation between human and animal nature and culture. Because without yes. a critical interrogation of those, we're going to dissolve into more essentialisms. And essentialisms plus argument usually leads to just gridlock. Wow. If you're just joining us on Radio Free Georgia, this is In Tune to Nature, and I'm host Carrie Freeman talking with Dr. Merrick Muller, Assistant Professor of Rhetorical Studies at Florida Atlantic University, about the innovative concepts in her book, Impersonating Animals, Rhetoric, Ecofeminism, and Animal Rights Law. Dr. Muller, I like that your book offers a prescription to the problem you described in animal law discourse, and that solution revolves around a notion you call critical vegan rhetoric. Can you tell us what critical vegan rhetoric is and why it has 
the potential to lead to total liberation of species or is it has a, some advantages over some of the previous approaches we've talked about? Well, the first thing I'd like to say is that I'm not proposing that I have the number one super duper answer that all lawyers need to follow and all activists need to follow. This is this is more of an exploration and yeah. guidance from the perspective of a rhetorician, um, yeah. somebody who studies arguments and who studies arguments from an approach that takes seriously both environmental and social justice. So critical vegan rhetoric is three different terms. Critical meaning examining broader systems of power and oppression and trying to denormalize things that are considered normal, but perhaps should not be. Right. Rhetoric in the sense that I study persuasion and arguments and how circulations of arguments can lead to social change. Vegan, where I'm not talking about veganism as a diet, but veganism as an ethic, an ethic that basically maintains that one should avoid the exploitation of non-human animals as far as is possible and practicable. Not because I said so, but because if you have the choice not to hurt something, why would you hurt it? Right. So critical vegan rhetoric from my perspective basically says that social change comes from argumentation from the top down and from the bottom up. And so because my book is focused largely on law, animal personhood, the, achie the achievement of legal rights for animals. I don't discount the idea that large scale legal change is going to be a humongous, humongous, humongous part of achieving what we might call animal rights. Supreme court decision would be phenomenal. An appeals court decision would be phenomenal. And in fact, there have been international decisions that have in fact gotten um, some countries rather close to what we might call legal personhood for animals. Recent decisions in India, in dolphin personhood, for example. These things are possible through very sustained, very strategic legal efforts done by lawyers, by activist groups, conducting strategic lawsuits and attempting to create top-down change through strategic legal arguments. Bottom-up social change though, take seriously the idea that Law and laymen, laymen meaning non-practicing lawyers, are in constant conversation with one another. What might be considered radical now is probably unlikely to see a lot of legal success in so much as a judge or a lawyer isn't likely to stake their reputation on an extremely radical legal decision. But when public consensus starts to shift, that's when ideas that might have seen ridiculous years ago might actually see success in court of law. So for that reason, this vegan ethic, this idea that we see in localized animal rights groups that say, we do not use animals, we do not exploit animals, we do not abuse animals. This is when that comes into play. Um, the constant push for conceiving of animals socially as not merely instrumental means to an end, but as brought part of a, a larger moral community can basically trickle up instead of laws simply trickling down to impact broader treatment of non-human animals. It's a reciprocal feedback loop, if you will, where the top down and the bottom up are in a constant interchange. And these interchanges are rhetorical in nature. So my critical vegan rhetoric basically says, you take seriously arguments at the top and the bottom. And you also have to do that with an understanding that 
human beings are fundamentally self-interested. And if you're going to try to argue for the rights of a capital O other, you probably have to also understand how that is going to benefit yourself. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, it's critical to understand that this conception of personhood is embedded in ideas of the broader social community. It's embedded in ideas of systemic exploitation. And so fighting for animal rights and animal law is not simply an endeavor that is taken up by people who are bored and have no other issues in their life, but is an important part of a process that understands that one of the reasons oppressions tend to prosper is because of the centralization of the human, where human Mm. is considered to be something that isn't just homo sapien writ large, but a particular category of homo sapien, usually reflecting whatever homo sapiens happen to have the most economic and social capital at the time. Mm. And that's why it can be liberating for all of us um, if we can dismantle the notion um, of kind of personhood or the ideal human because there's always been a privilege that has excluded Whereas the critical vegan rhetoric um, is more of kind of a nonviolent justice orientation um, for all living beings. Yeah. And now would that function perfectly in our adversarial legal system? Probably not. More than likely, what has to happen to have any reasonable chance of rights for animals as we conceive of them now is that a group like the Non-Human Rights Project will need to have a legal victory in achieving personhood for animals through filing their suits through writs of habeas corpus. But what we have to be careful of is in discourses about personhood, we're not defining personhood as, well, to be a person, you have to have certain cognitive capacities. You have to resemble an able-bodied human subject. Mm. You have to be able to use language exactly as humans do it. Because not only does that exclude the possibility of animal rights for more than a couple species, it also has implications, for example, for disabled persons. Right. So there's a series of arguments that need to be constantly deconstructed because an argument that would seemingly bring rights to animals could potentially lead to jurisprudential precedents that could be damaging to other people. Mm. But arguments about rights for people, if they become extraordinarily anthropocentric, could preclude potential rights for animals. And that's a problem because the oppression of animals is inherently tied up in the exploitations of humans. Yeah. I really like this concept too, just because of its inclusivity and because it asks everyone, no matter what their um, goal is or whoever, whatever um, quote unquote victimized group you're fighting for, to think about the implications of your approach on lots of other uh, marginalized groups so that we can work together. Um, and, And my human animal earthling identity book kind of takes that that similar approach as well. So I really appreciate the like the inclusivity that you bring here. Dr. Muller, as a wrap up, I wanted you to share a suggestion for a way that our listeners could help, even if they aren't lawyers or professors. Essentially, what can the average person take away from this discussion if they wanted to contribute to interspecies justice like in their own lives? On a personal level, I would say education. 
-hmm. and education not in the sense that you need to enroll in the university because there's public information available through multiple outlets such as sentient media for example uh such as uh through christopher sebastian mcjetters uh activists like amy breeze harper uh basically to understand the reality of what it means to be an exploited animal but also the reality of what it means to be an exploited human mm. and the very similar systems that interact to make both of those possible. Um, obviously, I would always encourage, if not following a 100% pure vegan diet, to follow a vegan ethic, which basically means avoiding the exploitation of non-human beings as far as is possible and practicable. Understanding right. that purity is impossible. Right, it is. But effort is always possible. Right. And it does make you feel better, too, when you're living more in alignment with with your values, even if it's, it's not perfect, but you know that you're trying. So, well, I really appreciate uh, everything that you've said today. And that's the end of our show. But I wanted to thank you, Dr. Merrick Muller, for being with us on Radio Free Georgia's In Tune to Nature program. And I think you're to be congratulated for successfully tackling such an ambitious project for your first book, Impersonating Animals. And as a communication scholar myself, I look forward to reading and citing your future books as well. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to In Tune to Nature, broadcasting every Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, online at wrfg.org and on Atlanta radio station 89.3 FM. We post action items, news, and podcasts on the show's website, facebook.com backslash Nature. The views and opinions expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of WRFG, its board, staff, or volunteers. I'm one of those volunteers. I'm host Carrie Freeman, asking you to please support independent, non-commercial media like Radio Free Georgia. Remember to take care of yourself and others, including other species. Thank you for listening. Cheers. <laughs>